please be advised. This episode contains detailed discussions of violence and sexual content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a typical Tuesday in May of 1989 as 13-year-old Amanda Goodman set out from Brownwood Junior High School for the one-mile walk to her home. From what we know, Amanda felt safe in her small town and enjoyed her daily journey from class. Unfortunately, it would be Amanda's last walk as a monster, still unknown to us today, intervened and shattered the lives of her family and brought terror to the small community of Brownwood, Texas. Welcome to the Box in the Basement podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Arlene. And I'm Leah. These first few cases were sticking to Texas, more specifically the heart of the Lone Star State. With its rolling hills, innumerable mesquite trees, blowing tumbleweeds, and small towns. My uncle Leon was murdered near one of these small towns in 1996. And while many tend to romanticize small town living, the matter of unsolved violent crimes brings to the surface the more frustrating and stressful aspects of the rural life. Beneath the charming veneer of church suppers, tight-knit families, and wholesomeness, often rolls a seedy undercurrent of corruption, nepotism, organized crime, bigotry, and ignorance that fuels all manner of mistakes and cover-ups. This is not to say all small-town law enforcement or small-town life in general is inept or evil, nor is anyone claimed that these things don't happen in larger cities. But the missteps and malice tend to stand out more. The notion of safety and security and knowing the motives of our neighbors is shattered when violent crime strikes the smaller towns of our nation. And the distress is compounded when that crime goes unsolved. Our vision and mission here is to bring some of the lesser-known unsolved crimes to light and examine the factors that lead them to remain unsolved. This one happened in the same small town where my uncle Leon was murdered. Amanda Goodman, also known as Sissy, was an eighth grade student in Brownwood, Texas, when her life was mercilessly cut short on May 16, 1989, on her way home from school. To this day, her murder remains unsolved, and her grieving family's questions left unanswered. Today, we will discuss the facts of the case as we know them, and examine a few theories that journalists, family, and local law enforcement have with regards to who may have committed this heinous crime. Before we get into the case, it's important to talk a little bit about Brownwood. We covered it to some extent in Arlene's four-part series on Leon Lorellis' murder, but we're going to cover it again. Brownwood is a town of around 19,000 people that is almost in the geographical center of Texas around 180 miles southwest of Dallas and 140 miles northwest of Austin. Not quite the hill country and not quite the Panhandle Plains. It's an old farming and ranching settlement that dates back to the mid-19th century. By the early 1900s, cotton had taken over the town's economy and two colleges had opened their doors to the community. The population of Brownwood continued to grow as the oil industry boomed and World War II led the army to build a training camp in the town, one that would eventually become the largest such facility in the state of Texas. 
The population of Brownwood ballooned as military families moved in and civilians followed behind, searching for jobs and business opportunities. When Camp Bowie closed in 1946 and a severe drought ensued, Brownwood faded and shrank. Today, Brownwood sits at the crossroads of U.S. Highways 67, 84, 183, and 377. And by the time Amanda Goodman's family moved there in 1981, the city had become a manufacturing hub, as 3M and Kohler call the city home. Amanda Goodman was born May 13, 1976, in Spring Hill, Louisiana. And her family moved to Brownwood, Texas, in 1981. At the time of her death, she lived with her mother, Barbara, also with her stepfather, George, and two brothers, ages 3 and 11. Her friends and families alike describe Amanda as a friendly girl with a big heart who dreamed of one day becoming a nurse. She was an honors student in the Gifted and Talented program who stayed out of trouble, a tomboy who loved tennis and walking around barefoot. She was a homebody who played with Barbie dolls and preferred making art to worrying about boys and dating. She played cornet in the church where her family attended services regularly. This will become important to the story as we continue. She and her family celebrated her 13th birthday just three days before her death. Tuesday, May 16, 1989, started off as most spring days did, with Amanda getting a ride to school with a neighbor. From all accounts, her day at Brownwood Junior High School was a normal one, with none of her teachers or fellow students noting anything out of the ordinary. After classes ended, Amanda typically walked the mile from school to her home at Southside Village Apartments every afternoon. Classes ended at 3.30 p.m., so when she didn't make it home by 4.15 p.m. that day, her mother Barbara assumed Amanda had ignored her instructions to come directly home and decided to hang out with friends instead. Typical 13-year-old behavior, but not necessarily typical for Amanda, who tended to mind her parents and preferred being at home. Slightly annoyed, and at this point not thinking anything was seriously amiss, Barbara got into her car and drove around Brownwood looking for her daughter. But it began to rain heavily, thwarting her efforts and sending her back home after about an hour. The investigation would eventually determine that some friends saw Amanda walking home from school on her usual route that day. She was in front of the Hickory Stick restaurant at the intersection of Calvert Road and Stephen F. Austin Drive when these witnesses saw her. This sighting occurred around 3.40 p.m., which makes sense as Brownwood Junior High, now Brownwood Middle School, is only a couple hundred yards from that intersection. Those who saw Amanda did not report seeing any suspicious activity nearby, didn't notice anyone following her, and none of them saw her get into a vehicle. Barbara was only home a short time when Brownwood police knocked on her door with the news that would change her life forever. Police informed Barbara that Amanda's body had been found by a passerby at 4.30 p.m. on the side of Indian Creek Road, about nine miles south of Brownwood, and 18 miles from the school, near a landfill and the Indian Creek community. She had been shot at close range once in the head, with the entrance wound just in front of her left ear and the exit wound above her right ear, closer to the back of her head, 
so a slightly upward trajectory. Her body had been placed very deliberately, almost carefully, on the side of the road, with her denim purse and a notebook beside her. There was no attempt to conceal her body. At some point, the crime scene photos showed her head had lain on her open notebook. Nothing was taken from her purse. Her clothing, a denim skirt and a long-sleeved white shirt, was intact and in place, and it was determined that she had not been sexually assaulted during the attack. In fact, there was no sign of a struggle of any kind. Whoever killed Amanda did it quickly. The lack of blood evidence at the crime scene and the absence of a gun and bullet led investigators to believe that Amanda had been shot elsewhere and placed by the road after the fact. The lack of bullet and shell casing has prevented law enforcement from precisely determining the caliber of the gun used, though they believe it was a medium to large caliber weapon. That honestly doesn't really narrow it down. It may eliminate a 22, for example, but not a 9mm, a 40, or even a 38 Special, which are all immensely popular. Unfortunately, the heavy rainfall in the area did not help with evidence collection. It is very likely that even if a shell casing or bullet had been left behind, it could have easily been washed away along with any other trace evidence at the scene. Given that her body was found more than 18 miles from where she was last seen at the corner of Calvert Road and Stephen F. Austin Drive in Brownwood, it would have been impossible for Amanda to have walked that distance in such a short time. Her body was found an hour after she was released from school, remember? Investigators asserted early on that Amanda had been taken to the spot on Indian Creek Road in a vehicle. Though at first, there was no clear indication whether this was done forcibly or if she entered someone's vehicle willingly. Her family and friends insist that Amanda was not the type to get into a car with a stranger. So police assumed early on that if she had gone willingly, she'd known the driver or someone else in the vehicle. Investigators retraced Amanda's typical route between the school and her home, finding no evidence of a struggle or abduction, which further solidified the assumption that Amanda had willingly gotten into a vehicle, meaning her abductor was likely someone known to her. Amanda was laid to rest the Friday after her death, her funeral crowded with neighbors, family, friends, teachers, and schoolmates. Six different pastors presided over her service. In the early phases of the investigation, the list of potential suspects was long and varied. This was a small town, after all. Murders were not all that common here, especially murders of children. Amanda had no known enemies, and she was only just barely 13. There were very few witnesses, and there wasn't much physical evidence. There simply wasn't much to go on. As investigators interviewed local residents, a few mentioned seeing a unique red and white pickup truck with a black toolbox in the area near where Amanda's body was found. The police pursued this lead, but were ultimately unable to track down the vehicle, despite several public pleas for information. Tips poured in, at least at first, and a variety of leads and theories were pursued. School administrators, teachers, parents, and others met in these early days to take the task 
of analyzing the known facts into their own hands, but they came up empty-handed. Nobody could think of a plausible motive. No possible set of circumstances reasonably explained the murder of this beloved teenager. All that came out of this meeting of concerned adults was a plan to increase the number of parents and teachers in and around the school for extra security. With no obvious motive, it wasn't irrational to believe other children may be at risk. One of Amanda's neighbors was interviewed in the days after the killing and noted that she and other parents in the community were being more protective of their children and not allowing them to walk home from school. Investigators interviewed the adults in Amanda's life, but they were cleared fairly quickly. Her stepfather, George, was at work at the time of the murder. Her mother, Barbara, was actually considered a suspect early on, but she passed a polygraph and was cleared. Amanda had apparently reported some of her fellow students to the school administration earlier in the school year for drug use on campus, but those leads ultimately amounted to nothing. Several possible witnesses were even hypnotized in the days and weeks following the murder, but no new information came to light. Local businesses and citizens pooled their resources and offered a substantial reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction, but the tips eventually petered out. There are a number of theories floating around out there about this case. The first one is that Amanda's murder was retaliation for her ratting out some fellow students who were using drugs. This doesn't really make much sense. Amanda did apparently tell on some of her peers, but it was quite some time before her murder, and nothing ever really came of that drug incident. From what I can tell, nobody got into any serious trouble. Plus, these are little kids, middle schoolers. Would a middle schooler really find an adult or older student with a car and a gun to hunt down Amanda months after getting out it for something that wasn't really all that serious? Seems far-fetched. The other major theory is that Amanda was being sexually abused by a pastor at her church, James Hampsey, and was killed to keep her from talking. Hampsey was interviewed during the investigation and passed a polygraph, which really doesn't mean much, but police were never able to definitely link him to Amanda's murder. He moved to Illinois just a few months afterward. We've spoken to someone who worked for the Brown County DA's office, and he mentioned that this suspect had previously been interviewed regarding the murders of two women in his former congregation in another state. Again, no charges were filed against him, and he simply moved on. There was some speculation about his pickup truck being seen near the crime scene. It was pretty recognizable and had a broken window, though this sighting could never be confirmed. Our contact at the DA's office has said that Hampsey's truck was thoroughly cleaned inside and out and the broken window had been replaced by the time the police came around asking questions after the fact. This theory carries a lot of weight, in my opinion. Police considered him a strong suspect from the early stages. They just couldn't make it fit. To me, a pastor, someone who might have been considered a pillar of the community in a small town, conservative Christian Brownwood in 1989, silencing a potential 
witness or victim is a lot more believable than a 13-year-old kid getting revenge for something silly. Unfortunately, we are left with more questions than answers in that regard. In an interview two years after Amanda's murder, Brown County Sheriff Bill Donahue states that this was, quote, the most baffling case I've ever been involved in. I wish we could say we have high hopes for a successful ending to this homicide case. The truth of the matter is we are not anywhere close to solving the case, end quote. Donahue disclosed that investigators had continued to question, polygraph, and hypnotize potential witnesses over the preceding two years, but no real information had come of it. According to Donahue, at least two people had claimed to witness Amanda's abduction at gunpoint, but those accounts were considered by law enforcement to be fabrications and exaggerations. Well-meaning citizens sometimes try to help law enforcement a little too much, and it turns into a dead end or a waste of everyone's time. And some people just like the attention and like to insert themselves in important situations. In the worst case, you may have someone who knows something about the case deliberately throwing the police off the trail, but there's no way to determine if that was the case here. In any event, these fabricated accounts were another complication and a distraction. A grand jury actually convened about two and a half years after Amanda's murder, but this effort was more to consolidate information and get everyone on the same page rather than get any indictments. Indeed, no indictments were returned, but the district attorney at the time, Fred Franklin, said several key witnesses provided quote-unquote critical information he hoped would allow investigators to narrow their focus. Three years after the murder in 1992, Texas Ranger Bobby Grubbs reported that he'd met with potential witnesses who had, quote, some new information we are checking out, end quote. At the five-year mark, Sheriff Bill Donahue once again went to the newspapers to plead for information from the public, urging anyone who was withholding key facts to come forward. Amanda's family moved away from Brownwood. The case was eventually turned over to the Texas Rangers Cold Case Unit in 2005, and the Rangers submitted several pieces of evidence for forensic testing that wasn't available at the time of the murder, but nothing has come of it. The Rangers' Unsolved Homicide website only features a handful of their unsolved cases at any given time, leaving the task of keeping the victim's story alive to their families, friends, and communities. As of December 2023, Amanda's case is not on the Rangers' Unsolved Homicide page. Amanda's mother Barbara passed away in 2013, never having gotten any answers, closure, or justice for her daughter's death. Amanda's cousin, Judy Williams, keeps her case alive on Facebook on a page called Justice for Sissy. She has attempted to speak to the Texas Rangers about her concern over the status of the case and some leads that she feels may have not been pursued, but nothing has come of these meetings. We chose to follow Leon Lorellis' case with this story for several reasons. First of all, because it's another unsolved homicide in Brownwood, Texas. Second, it's because the two cases share a number of common denominators and coincidences. Bill Donahue was sheriff at the time of both murders. Amanda's in 1989 
in Leon's in 1996. Bobby Grubbs was the Texas Ranger assigned to the Brownwood area at the time of both murders. Grubbs took over the investigation of Leon's murder almost immediately. But in Amanda's case, the Sheriff's Department held on to it until 2005, before turning it over to the Rangers' cold case division. Both Amanda and Leon were shot in the head and left unconcealed on the side of the road outside of town. Though a key difference here is that Leon was shot at the site where his body was found, while Amanda is thought to have been shot elsewhere and then taken to the place she was found afterward. And then there's another matter that we haven't discussed about Leon's case yet. At his funeral, the family was warned by Ranger Grubbs not to look at Leon's body because his face had been in an ant bed and thus disfigured. No mention of this was made in the medical examiner's report, so I had my doubts that this was true. When we found out later that Grubbs had told Amanda's family the exact same thing, I knew it couldn't be a coincidence. Was this just Grubbs' way of keeping families from the trauma of seeing the aftermath of a bullet to the head? I don't know, but I doubt it. It just feels weird and a little shady given the circumstances of each person's death and the fact that nobody has ever been brought to trial in either case. Lastly, the way that Amanda's case was handled, in general, really bothers me. The former employee of the DA's office I've spoken with has mentioned that squabbles between law enforcement offices was a major impediment to progress in the case. This is a common theme we'll see as we examine other cases. Communication becomes an issue, especially in older cases prior to centralized databases being readily available. It's also an issue because ego gets in the way. Individuals and offices want to keep information to themselves, or they get their feelings hurt, or they want the credit for themselves if a case gets solved, or they want to avoid blame if things go sideways. In the end, information falls through the cracks. Things get missed and cases get fumbled. That seems to be the case here. Our contact at the DA's office also claims to have worked Leon's case and has expressed his frustration at the fact that neither case has been solved. If you have any information about the murder of Amanda Goodman, please call the Brownwood County Sheriff's Department at 325-646-5510. Or contact the Texas Rangers Cold Case Division. That was an incredible episode, ladies. And I definitely learned some new things about Amanda's case that I hadn't heard before. Arlene, who are some of the people you've been speaking to about Amanda's case? I've been speaking to Amanda's aunt, Becky, and uh, her cousin, Judy. Fantastic. And hopefully we'll have a chance to interview them in the future and get more details on who Amanda is or was and what you can do to help solve her case. In terms of how many boxes in the basement there are of cases like Amanda's in the United States, how many do you think there are, ladies? 
This would be females 10 to 13 years of age murdered in the United States of America since 1976 to 2020. I'm going to say 5,000. Yeah, I'll say 4,000. Okay, fortunately, ladies, there's only a few cases that have not been solved of Amanda's case. I like Amanda's cases. There are approximately 348 boxes in America sitting in basements today of unsolved murders just like amanda's so fortunately not very many yes good these cases tend to get solved pretty quickly in terms of what weapons are typically used it is typically a gun like in most cases but also there are personal weapons blunt blunt objects knives and other which we don't even know what that is actually being around the same as guns. So technically when it comes to these unsolved cases, um, it's kind of across the board, all sorts of different weapons that were used. Of the ones that were solved, we did take a look at who the perpetrators were and overwhelmingly it is acquaintances and strangers. Surprising. Yeah. It is surprising because most people are going to say, oh, it's the stepfather or the boyfriend or well, these are young, young girls who are unlikely to be in a relationship and if they are it's probably going to be an older man who is taking advantage of them and uh, sexually assaulting them which could have been the case in amanda's so we hope to look at other ones in the state of texas that are similar to amanda's in the upcoming episodes this podcast has a bigger purpose than just providing information and entertainment The Homicide Victims' Families' Rights Act is a bipartisan bill that was signed into law by Congress in 2021, and we want to see it put into action. This law establishes a systematic process for reviewing case files related to cold case murders. The focus is on providing a mechanism for the families and friends of murder victims to request a formal review of such cases. We need an attorney or teams of attorneys and legal professionals to take on the bold and brave fight against the system around the country. If you want to hear more about victim-focused, unsolved cases, and get updates about what we know, please subscribe, like, and share our podcast. Also, visit our website, justiceforleon.com to donate to our cause to hire an attorney. Plus, you can submit a tip anonymously. You can also join our email list to stay current on developments on Leon's case and other cases we cover as they happen. Thank you.